Okay, I have a little game to start this talk, so I hope you're up for this. I'm going to show you some pictures of statues. It's a very exciting game. Um, and what I want you to do is to, um, to come up with the name of the statue and the place. Keep that to yourself as I scroll through them. The first one is quite easy, and you might know it. Um, and then, again, a little bit harder. You've got a minute or two to talk to your neighbour and see whether we can come up with the name and the location of these statues. Are you ready? Okay, here they all are. So start eating again a little bit harder. So, with your neighbour, do you know the name and the location of those statues? I confess the third one is a little obscure. Right, let's see how we do. Let's come back. Okay, all together. This is? Well done. And where is it? New York on Liberty Island. Okay, this one. Does anybody know who this is? She has a name. Anyone? Her name is Verity. And does anyone know where the Statue of Verity is? I'll give you a clue. It's by the artist Damien Hurst. It was somewhat controversial. My relatives happen to live in this town, and it's not terribly popular. I've shown you the nice side of the statue. The other side has all of her um, internal organs and muscles exposed. This is in Ilfracum Harbour. Okay. Right, this one is quite difficult. Does anybody know who this is? This woman is called uh, Louisa Aldrich Blake and her statue is in Tavistock Square which is a slight clue as to what she's known for. She's just outside the General Medical Council and she is the first female surgeon in the UK. Um, born in the late 1800s and Dean of the Royal Free um, hospital um, School of Medicine in 1910. Okay, this isn't a very easy picture to make out, but actually, if I tell you who it is, you'll kick yourselves. Does anybody know? Thank you, he said that. Rosa Parks. And does anyone know where the statue is? It is in the US Capitol. So, um, there's a room in the Capitol building and every state is allowed to send two statues of citizens and that is the statue of Rosa Park, famous for her um, resistance to bus segregation that began the bus boycott in Montgomery. Okay, now if anyone can do this, I will be amazed. Does anybody know the connection between Louisa Blake Aldrich's statue and the statue of Rosa Parks? <laughs> Not the same person. Liberty and Verity are good examples of what most statues of women in um, public art are, which is they are statues of mythical um, creatures or um, figures that are supposed to symbolise something to us. Rosa Park is one of 12 women who are featured in the Capitol statue collection. There are over 200 statues. She's also, incidentally, one of the only African-American persons depicted in the collection. Now this figure is even better. Louisa Blake Aldrich is one of, anyone want to guess, how many public statues in the UK that 
that show real historical and non-royal women. Shall I tell you how many men there are? There are 498 men depicted in public statues. How many women? <laughs> A little bit higher. There are 25 in the whole, whole of the UK and about nine of them in London. So if you walk around London and look out to see whether you can find the other eight or nine women, real women, who are depicted in statues, you might be wondering what that's got to do with shepherds. And history is often told from one perspective. It's told from the perspective of power and of victory. So it's not a big surprise to us that given most of our public art and statues were made in a particular era, that they tell a particular story. Um, I'm a real lover of cities, and one of the things that I like about cities is as you walk around, you can um, observe the story that you're being told by the buildings, by the art, we're told um, a particular story in culture all of the time. And so um, one of the stories that we're often being told um, is a story of kind of white male power. I may get off that soapbox now. Um, but to say that it kind of um, it matters to pay attention um, to the figures and the characters in the stories um, that we're being told. And in the first opening story from Luke's Gospel... Um, Luke is telling us a particular story when he includes the shepherds. So it's worth us noting um, that the shepherds are in Luke's gospel. They don't appear um, in the other birth narrative in Matthew. So the inclusion of the shepherds right from the beginning tells us something both about what Luke's story is and also about our invitation into it. It's one of my very favorite quotes about the shepherds. Um, okay, we've said already, shepherds um, in the first century Palestine, shepherds are not a particularly um, honored group of people. Um, being a shepherd wasn't a very glamorous job. It used to be in Israel's history. Um, most of Israel were nomadic, um, pastoral people. But somewhere approaching the time of Jesus' birth, being a shepherd is a, a sort of occupation that falls into something of disrepute. Um, this quote is from the Talmud. Um, so apparently, no one should feel obligated, no um, good observant Jew should feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who's fallen into a pit. So shepherds apparently were not worth saving. Um, what do we know about the shepherds in this story? Well, we don't know a great deal, but we could make a few guesses. Um, shepherds in first century Palestine are um, either sort of second or third sons who haven't inherited um, the land, um, but who get to work their father's flocks, or they're hirelings, they're people who um, are, do a job. And these are night watchmen shepherds. They're most likely to be hirelings. So close to Jerusalem, they're likely to be, so this is speculation, but it may be that they're guarding the temple flock who are reared for sacrifice, um, which is kind of ironic because shepherds as a group were largely excluded from religious rituals. They were busy looking after the sheep and sheep are dirty animals and they weren't able to take part in the kind of ceremonial um, cleansing and all of the rituals that required them to be at the heart of religious life. So they may have been raising the sheep that were used for sacrifice, but they by and large were excluded from the life of the temple. 
Um, Religious leaders didn't think very much of shepherds. Um, Shepherds who lived outside, literally, and outside of society um, were generally considered unclean, untrustworthy. Um, They had had a reputation for being drunk, for not being reliable. Um, Shepherds are banned um, at the time from being witnesses in a court, um, which is another beautiful bit of irony in this story, that they're not allowed to give witness in a court of law because they're so unreliable. Um, And yet the angels call them to be the very first witnesses to the birth of Christ, other than Mary and Joseph. So the appearance of the shepherds isn't an anomaly in Luke's story because Luke's gospel of all the gospels is the story of good news for the poor, for the oppressed, and for the outsider. The first words that we hear of Jesus' public ministry in Luke are these. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind. So right here, just with the appearance of the shepherds, we get this first glimpse of what Luke's story is going to be about. They're the first marginalized group to appear in Luke's gospel. So they remind us who this message that we're about to look at, they remind us who this message is for. So enter the angels, the dead of night, the hillside outside Jerusalem, this is the good news that the shepherds hear. That God has been born as one of us, that salvation is about to be expanded and extended to bring peace on earth to all humankind on whom God's blessing and goodwill and favor will rest. This is the most important message in history and it's delivered not to religious leaders or to people in power but to the least of these, to the unreliable witnesses, the outsiders, the shepherds who happen to be the people awake and keeping watch and looking after the sheep. The message itself is universal and I think that's worth us noting. It's not just a a symbolic thing that it's shepherds. It, the shepherds are included as they're excluded from a lot, of, um, a lot of the rest of society. They're included in this message. Different translations put this verse in different ways. And the way that we heard it from the NIV, um, it has what sounds almost like a contingent cause, like clause, blessed are those on whom God's favor rests, as if like blessed are some of us on whom God's favor rests. But um, I think you can read it, blessed are all of us on whom God's favor rests. God's favor is not um, only saved for a few, but this is a, um, a proclamation from the heavens, really, that God is coming into the world in a new way and that everybody is invited and included into that story. Um, And in the rest of, again, paying attention to what Luke's trying to say, in the rest of the story, Luke emphasizes that Jesus has come as a light of revelation for the Gentiles. The Jewish story has always included outsiders. It's always included people from outside the nation of Israel who are used by God or who experience God's blessing. But in Luke's gospel, we see that in a new way. And again, in Jesus' first public bit of ministry, he 
um, he refers to the hearers as he talks about this um, call he has um, to proclaim good news to the poor. He refers them to um, those in Israel's history from outside of the Jewish nation who were used by God. So Luke is in inviting us um, to remember that the good news is for the poor and for the least of these, and also that it is for all of us, that all of us are included. So the shepherds are the first recipients of the good news of Jesus' birth, and that's um, not just that a baby has been born, but it's a declaration of God's kingdom. And again, in the rest of the gospel, that's what Jesus keeps on inviting people into, into this shalom, this wholeness, this coming of God to be with us, and all that that means. The shepherds aren't just told good news, um, they are invited to do something. The angels say to them, you will find, which is kind of an imperative, um, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So in order to um, find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, they're going to have to leave the hillside and go and look for the baby. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I've been puzzling a little bit about the angels in this story. I tend to imagine that if an angel appeared to me with a message, I would be pretty clear about what it was I was meant to do. That sounds nice and easy. Um, and angels appear um, all the way through the Old Testament story, often to call people to something really specific and to a particular action. And we get this kind of crescendo of angels in the Christmas story. They're everywhere. Um, and then they die out a bit. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is because we're, we're in a new part of the story. And what we have after the Christmas story um, is people who have met and experienced Jesus and responded to Jesus and passed the message on. So we no longer get messages from angels so much as we get messages from each other as we pass on the story through the generations. But one thing that's, um, one thing that's kind of universal to angel appearances um, is that people are extraordinarily afraid. Um, the translation of um, the shepherds were terrified um, the kind of literal words mean they feared a great fear. Um, that's kind of a natural response, I suppose, to something like this happening while you were kind of dozing away or keeping your eye on the sheep. Um, I sometimes wonder whether, I wonder whether all the shepherds went to Bethlehem to see what happened. I wonder whether any of them stopped at fear, whether they heard the message, um, maybe even were intrigued by it, um, but didn't go. They didn't get to witness it. They, did anyone just volunteer to stay put with the sheep um, or kind of slink into the background? We don't know. But what the text tells us um, is that the shepherds, despite their fear, said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem, and they hurried off. Um, Seth Godin is a um, marketeer and a kind of study of human emotion. And he talks about um, five kind of primal drives, emotions, that either immobilizes or sometimes causes to act. So I think because it spells out flash, um, he identifies fear and longing, anger, shame, and hunger, that these are emotions that when we experience them, we can't rationalize them away 
we can't kind of form an argument. The only thing that we can do is to kind of lean into them, to feel them, and then choose to act anyway. So fear can be immobilizing. Um, so why do the shepherds go to Bethlehem? Why are they not immobilized by this fear? Um, I wonder whether it has something to do with hunger and something to do with hope. So the shepherds have a backstory. There is, um, before the angels appear on the hillside, there is about 400 years of kind of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Israel is again by this point occupied by another power and life is hard and they're experiencing all kinds of oppression and they're longing for a Messiah. The end of the Old Testament, the end of the prophets is all about this day when a Messiah will come and sort of bring a judgment that puts an end to oppression and to evil and restore the nation of Israel. So even though the shepherds are kind of slightly outside of Israel's story, they're still a part of that long history of waiting for a Messiah to come. And maybe those shepherds feel that more than most. They're more in need, they're more aware um, of their need for something better and something different and for salvation. So maybe their hunger for this message to be true outweighs their fear. And maybe hunger for change looks an awful lot like hope. And because they act, because they rush off to Bethlehem and look for the baby, then they get this huge payoff. They're amazed, they're excited. They get, the angel gives them a sign so that when they find the baby, they'll know that the message the angel is promising that finally the Messiah is here and God is entering into the world. They'll know it's true because they've seen this sign and therefore they've become a part of this extraordinary moment. They're under no um, misunderstanding that this story of salvation includes them and invites them in. Um, because they took a risk, they went, they acted, they left their sheep behind. If, they, if when they came back, the sheep weren't there, they would have had to pay for the sheep, which would have been impossible. Um, so they would have been in all kinds of trouble for leaving the sheep behind. So they do something that no good shepherd would ever have done, just left the flock out on the hillside, exposed to all kinds of danger, and run to Bethlehem. So something compels them that's greater than their fear and greater than their fear of the consequence. Something compels them to Bethlehem. So what's the um, invitation to us in this story, this Advent? I don't know about you, but um, 2016 hasn't been a very good year. Um, in fact, it's in some terms been a pretty terrible year for some of us, maybe personally, but as a world, it feels like um, it's been a pretty bad year. Um, between Brexit and the US elections, there's a war in Syria and very many other wars around the world. We've seen a, ra a rise um, in hate crime, in racist incidents. We've seen much more division 
maybe that's always been there, but it seems to be kind of top of our news agenda. Um, the economic situation is worsening for many people. We see that with more people in debt. We see that with families who are struggling to manage. We see that with the rise um, in the use of food banks. We have a massive refugee crisis right on our doorstep. And yet, um, that seems to be something as a nation we're quite able to either kind of have contempt for um, or ignore. Um, maybe in our own lives there are ways in which relationships have imploded or um, where we're kind of at war with one another. Um, so the world is, I think, at the moment, quite a difficult and a scary place. Um, and yet we're called to believe that as Jesus entered the world and the angels declared peace and goodwill for all mankind, that that's a message that still includes us and still calls to us, and it's a message that invites us to action. It calls us on from fear or despair um, or general kind of overwhelmedness um, and into something else. And so I was um, thinking a lot about calling because calling is something that we tend to imagine is out there in the future. If you Google Christian calling, you'll get a whole load of websites about how to become a member of the clergy, um, which seems to be somewhat missing the point. Um, of course, there are contingent calls. There are things that are really specific to the situation that we're in. Um, but actually, just like the shepherds, we have a backstory. Um, when we think about calling, we're, we're tempted to imagine that it's something just out of reach, maybe something a little bit mysterious that is going to someday arrive in a perfect form and we'll understand what we're here for. Um, we already have a calling. Jesus came into the world to bring peace and reconciliation and to make the kingdom real um, in our world. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, keeps inviting people to action, not just to hear the good news, but to act, not just to talk about the kingdom, but to be a part of making it real in the world in which we live, to take a risk, to love God, to love one another, to be peacemakers, to be justice seekers, to love our enemies, to serve each other, to step across divides, to ache for change, and then to step into action. Um, a quote from a friend of mine who's not famous, um, but it's a good quote anyway. He says this, most of us dream in the wrong direction. When reviewing the direction of our life, we look to the future and ask big discovery questions. This can lead to endless options and possibilities that can make decisions more complex and confusing. But what if dreaming were not an act of discovery, but recovery? of rescuing something from your past that was lost. Sometimes finding our calling and our dream is more like a reunion than a first date. So I think the invitation of the Christmas story, it's a simple story in many ways. The story of the shepherds is so well known to us that we kind of don't see the drama of the angels appearing. But I think the invitation is for us to remember that Jesus came into the world to save the whole world and to call us to be a part of the redemption of the world and to be a part of that story. 
Um, some of you might have been here on Friday night when we were um, listening to Lord Dubbs and a woman from the Joe Cox Foundation and Citizens UK and Steve um, talking about the refugee crisis and the UK's response to it. Um, and one of the things that Steve said at the end was um, a comment on Martin Luther King's speech that he says he has a dream. Actually, what he has is a vision. He has a hope that calls him forward. Um, and that's what we, if we're not going to be stuck in our fear, maybe just in our anger um, about how the world appears to be right now, or in um, a sense of shame that things aren't better, if we're not going to get stuck there, then we need a hope and a vision that calls us forward. Um, and as simple as the Christmas story is, I think it reminds us that Jesus came not just as a baby, he didn't stay as a tiny little baby, um, he came to show us the way in which to bring justice, to seek peace, to love God and to love one another. Um, I'm going to show you a little video clip as we finish. Um, this <laughs> first thing to say about the video clip is that it sounds distorted. It's a tiny bit distorted at the beginning, which is my genius camera work. Um, but also the woman he's speaking is a woman called Pranitha Timothy, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about her in a moment, but one of the things about her is that she had a brain tumour a number of years ago and lost her voice. And the voice she's got back sounds like it's an electronic voice box. It's actually her voice. Um, and actually, it's an irony because she is a, she's spent her whole life as an advocate um, for the poor. She is um, a justice worker, really, in India. She lives in Chennai. Um, and she has spent 20 years of her life working in different ways to try and bring about justice for those who don't have justice. Um, and so one of the things that she often says is, if I, could do, if I can amplify the voice of those who have no voice with the voice that I have, then anybody else can do that. Um, she's worked particularly, she's been very instrumental in the... Um, changing um, perceptions and changing law and changing action around bonded labour. Um, and she's also worked a lot in the rescue of women who are trafficked. Um, and when I was speaking to her, I was asking her really about what was the good news um, as far as she was concerned. How is, how is the gospel actually good news in the world? Um, and one of the things she said was that she'd been in this game, as it were, for 20 years and she really thought things were worse and not better that for many people, and especially for children living in poverty. Um, and yet she still has hope, and she's still confident that she's called to action. Um, and she said, it's, it's, every, it's every little action, it's every person that you are able to make a difference to that keeps the hope alive. Um, and so I think this is a a clip really where she's asked, answering my question about what does it mean for us to be good news in the world, to bring this message that the angels brought of peace and goodwill into reality um, in the world. And so with an excuse the sound, it settles down after a few, about 10 or 20 seconds, and there are subtitles. If the church takes its proper place in the community, um, we wouldn't need NGOs, we wouldn't need an external body to come and help out. If the church was there to do what it was called to do, to bind up the brokenhearted, to feed the hungry, to rescue and to bring out from dungeon those in darkness, 
Well, that was the mission of Christ when he came to earth. And that is what Jesus said. I mean, the prophecy in Isaiah. And when Jesus walked into the synagogue and he took up the scroll, he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. And he, he mentioned it very clearly to bind up the broken heart, to set captives free, you know, to heal and to give sight to the blind. And all societies are in need of that healing. If the church was in the center, and if people came around the church and saw the church as the place where they could find answers, then I think you could curb human trafficking right there within the community. In my experience, we've rescued so many people. But the best examples of restoration have been where churches have embraced the girls that they rescued. Churches have opened up their homes and asked them to come and live with them. We've seen transformation overnight. The girls have felt accepted, loved. They've seen healing. They've experienced Christ in their everyday life. They've experienced Christ to the extent that they realize that they were not just rescued from trafficking, but they were rescued into eternity. That's very difficult when you take someone from a brothel and put them in a home. And you have a visit once in three months or once in a month. It's very difficult to bring transformation. But to rescue a girl and bring her into a community that loves her, that shows her what life is, that's church. And only the church can do that. So that's our invitation. Um, to be like the shepherds who hear the good news and to be like the shepherds who act on that news, who understand that the amazing news that the Christ has come to earth and that salvation includes us actually demands a response from us, not just to lament the state of the world or to hunger for change, but to step into action and to keep on stepping into action. And I think that's our invitation this advent so let me pray for us father god this advent may we be people who wait not patiently but impatiently for change may we be people who long and hunger to see the wholeness of your peace your goodwill your salvation made true for the least of these for the poor for the oppressed and for us as well would you remind us not just of our place in the story and our um, call for participation but would you remind us of the hope that Christmas story speaks to us that you are coming into the world and that your kingdom is coming into the world and that we are part of that redemption story. Amen. <laughs>